Some people, and they're all too rare, some people make a place better just by their presence. How like Jesus, everywhere he went, the place was better because he was there. I think Jeff Jenkins is a lot like Jesus in that regard. Jeff and I were in school at Fried Hardeman together. He doesn't look it, but he is a year older than I, and I like to bring that out as publicly as I can. Everywhere Jeff has worked as a local preacher, the place has been made better because of it. I think of three works in particular. He worked with the university congregation in Montgomery, Alabama for about 10 years. That's the home of Faulkner University, Alabama Christian. Then he went on eventually to North Mac, North MacArthur, North MacArthur in Oklahoma City, there for 10 years. He was at the Louisville congregation in the Dallas area for about 16 years. You start to notice a pattern of long and fruitful ministry of Jesus being seen over time and places being made better. This is the last lesson from Ephesians, is that right? In Christ, there's salvation. Tomorrow, there will be three lessons from Revelation. In Christ, there is victory. Isn't that really what Christianity is about? Salvation and victory in Jesus. Jeff has two kids, Amanda and Jeremy. He's got grandkids that I'm sure he would be happy to show you pictures of and do ask him about them. His work with the Jenkins Institute has been invaluable for a lot of preachers and elders, especially in recent years. The Jenkins Institute is an online entity as well as going places, having various conferences and lectureships to encourage preachers to get better and to help elders navigate in a God-honoring way uh, things that they may be facing in churches. Jeff is the son of a gospel preacher, Jerry Jenkins, who preached for one congregation in Birmingham, Alabama, for over 40 years. I think that Jeff and Dale, Brother Jenkins' sons, honor him, and they especially honor our Lord by the work they're doing in the kingdom. One of the busiest guys I know, but you'll never know it because he'll make you feel special. Jeff, come preach the word of God to us tonight. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much, um, Mike. I, I wish that was recorded, because, because I have a lot of friends that wouldn't believe all that stuff that you just said. And I would like for them to hear it from somebody else, uh, instead of hearing it from my mother all the time. Um, it's great to be here tonight. It's been a, a real joy the last couple of nights to be with you all. 
Uh, it's been a pleasure to worship with you and to study the Word with you. I appreciate Brother Adam for the great way he's led us in our singing each night, for the way he's led us in our worship. Appreciate all the prayers. Thank you, Brother Willie, for your prayer tonight. Good to see you again after a number of years. And I um, hope you've had a good day today. I had a very wonderful day today. Got to spend some time with one of my best friends today. Uh, Mike Vestal came into town today. He's a world traveler too, you know. And uh, I love spending time with Mike and Cherie today. And we talked about uh, times past and we talked about the work of the Lord that we'd love to talk about. I've said this a couple of times. I don't know any man uh, who, in our brotherhood, who cares for preachers and who encourages preachers in local churches better than Mike Vestal. And he is such a rich blessing. He and Cherie are such a rich blessing, I know, to this church. And I can tell you that that's true of them uh, from preachers that I know around the world. And so thank you for sharing them from time to time as well. Uh, Good to see you. Um, my friends, the Neths here tonight. Um, Alex spent some time at Louisville, and um, his parents are there still. And I love the Neth family, and it's so special uh, to be able to see uh, see them, and especially their sweet little girl, uh, Ellie. I do want to invite you to open your Bibles tonight to Ephesians chapter four. Uh, we'll get to that particular section in just a few minutes. What we've said about Ephesians is that we can kind of divide it into three sections. Uh, In the first two chapters, Paul deals with our uh, position in Christ. And he says about 15 different times in chapter 1 that we are in Christ. He will say in Him or in the Beloved. And Paul is trying to hammer home the point that that when you give your life to Jesus, you're you're placed in Him. And we don't don't put ourselves into Christ, but uh, Christ puts us into Him. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we are baptized into him for the forgiveness of sins, and then we're raised to walk a new life. And when we are in Christ, uh, that is our place, that is our position. And Paul wants to make it clear to the Ephesian church and to all of us that that's where we are. He does uh, such a a wonderful job of that. When you turn the page in chapter 2, primarily, he wants to, um, to kind of solidify this idea And he reminds them of where they used to be, where we used to be, compared to where we are now. So we call these formerly but now statements. And Paul would use that word, formerly but now. Uh, Formerly, he says, if you look at verse, uh, for instance, verse 12, I think that's one of the key passages. He says that you were separate from Christ. He gives five uh, designations to what it was like before you were in Christ. He says you were separate from Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenant of promise. You're without hope and without God in the world. And I don't know of a passage, one scripture, that gives a better description of what it's like to be without Christ, what it's like to be outside of Jesus. And so Paul wants them to know that they are in Christ. And, and brothers and sisters, that's, a, that's a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful privilege and a wonderful blessing. And Paul will say in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that all spiritual blessings are found in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so all of us who are in Christ tonight ought to look at that as a wonderful blessing. But we shouldn't uh, hoard that for ourselves. We should be willing to share that with the world. And that's the mission that we have is to to let everybody know how they can be in Christ and what it's like to be in Christ and how all the spiritual blessings that we have in heavenly places are in Christ. And so that's really the introduction to the book of Ephesians. 
The second part is the middle of the book, chapter 3, where Paul gives us the plan of God. And we spent a lot of time last night talking about God's plan, how it was his eternal plan. It was accomplished, he said, in verse 11, in Christ Jesus. And it is the mystery that Paul wrote about back in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, and then again in chapter 3. And he said this mystery has been hidden in God in times past. It was previously not made known to the sons of men, but now has been made known through the holy apostles and the prophets. And he says, when you read what I'm going to write, <coughs> pardon me, you'll understand my insight into the mystery. And so Paul wants them to know. And then he says, uh, namely, or to be specific, the mystery is that Gentiles are not now a fellow heirs, a fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the promise. And so isn't that wonderful? That includes all of us. That because of Jesus Christ, we now are involved in this mystery of God. And Paul says that it is the manifold wisdom of God, if you look at verse 10, that we declare the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. And in this passage, it does not say to the world, even though we know that, Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 16 and Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, we know that, that we make known the wisdom of God to the world. That is, again, our mission. Our mission is to proclaim the message of God to a lost and dying world. That is what we do. That is, the, uh, th- that is our, our goal as a church and as individual Christians. But in this passage, he says that we make known the wisdom of God, not to the world, but to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Uh, and uh, we believe that is talking about the angels. It could include the demons of hell itself, but probably here, the primary thought is to the angels. And by the way, that word, that phrase, rulers and authorities or principalities and powers is found in the book of Ephesians more than any other book. And so Paul wanted to emphasize that the, the church that is Christian, we are tied to that spiritual realm. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the wise men said that God has placed eternity in the hearts of all men. It's my conviction uh, that uh, the idea of uh, election and preordination is a false teaching. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 helps us understand that because God doesn't allow people to be born sinners. It is in fact true that he has placed eternity in the hearts of all men. And one of the things that means is that people are always searching. And when you see people who are always looking around for something better, a better way of life, something that will fulfill them, something that will bring them peace and encouragement and comfort, uh, if they're not children of God, that's what they're missing. Now, what they'll do is they'll try to fill that with all other types of of possessions and things and people and relationships and ideas and ideologies that Paul would write about to the Corinthian church when he said that part of our work is to crush uh, ideologies. And so people will try to fill that. Well, what are they trying to fill? They're trying to fill this void that is in their heart because they're ignoring the fact that eternity has been placed in their heart by the Creator Himself. And when they find that, they will find Jesus Christ in Him crucified. And they will be buried with Christ in baptism, and they will enjoy all the spiritual blessings. And so we make that known to the angels in heaven. And uh, we understand in uh, Luke chapter 15 that Jesus said, when a sinner repents, there's rejoicing among the angels in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that the angels uh, desire to look into those things. They want to know more about that. And so every time a a person becomes a child of God, the angels are saying, isn't God wise? And that's really what chapter 3 is all about. 
And then the last half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, deal with the idea of our practice. And so here's what Paul is doing. I think it's systematic. I think it's planned in his mind. I don't think Paul wrote it in a a fashion that was uh, not meant to be conclusive for us and for us to understand. He wants us to know who we are, where we are, what it means to be in Christ. He wants us to understand God's eternal plan. And then he wants us to understand our position. Now the truth is we will never, or our practice, we will never do what we're supposed to do and live like we're supposed to live until we understand who we are and where we are. And so he wants to get that straight. That's kind of the uh, the fundamental, the doctrinal aspect of the book of Ephesians. And then chapter 4 through 6, and I don't mean this is not doctrinal, but it's more practical for us. As a matter of fact, in the first part of the book, uh, you'll find a lot, of, uh, a lot of nouns and a lot of uh, adjectives describing uh, who we are and where we are. In the last part of the book, chapters 4 through 6, you find more imperative statements, more verbs. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to walk. This is what God wants you to do. He talks to husbands about how they treat their wives and wives about how they treat their husbands. And we'll discuss that just briefly tonight. But it's more about how we are to live our lives. But we will only live the way that we're supposed to live when we come to grips with who we are. And one of the reasons, I don't think it's the only reason, but one of the reasons some Christians um, don't live the way they're supposed to live is because they haven't fully understood what it means to be a child of God. They haven't fully understood who they are and where they are and the benefits and the blessings of that. And so we would do well, all of us, those of us who are preachers and teachers and elders and deacons and Bible class teachers, we would do well to begin uh, with the foundation and to say to people, you've got to understand who you are. You've got to understand where you are. And if we can get that across, it might be a little bit easier for people to do what they are supposed to do. Now, as we get older, uh, we, we kind of tend to learn more about what we're supposed to do. I have a friend uh, at Louisville, a, a young man who's uh, he's an older uh, high school student now, about a junior, senior, I think, in high school. When he was eight years old, he came to me one Sunday after the service, and uh, he was standing there, and he shook, uh, stuck out his hand, he had a sports coat on, and he said, uh, Brother Jeff, he said, uh, I would like to make an appointment to come talk to you. And I said, well, that'll be fine. And he said, I want to I come by your office. And I said, that'll be fine. And he pulled out a phone and he said, I'm available Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. Now, he's eight years old. I'm available Tuesday. And I said, well, okay, well, I'll be there. I'll be in my office. Just come on by. Well, Tuesday morning, uh, I didn't know what he wanted. I had no idea. Tuesday morning, he walks into my office. And um, I guess his mother had checked him out of school. I, I don't know what was going on. But he walked into my office and uh, he said, Brother Jeff, I have some questions I want to ask you about being a preacher. And I said, that's great, Will. And he pulled out his phone again. He said, I wrote down some questions that I have and I want you to answer them. So he started, he said, uh, Brother Jeff, how old are you? Uh, how long have you been preaching? And I told him. And he said, how old are you? I think I was about 56 at the time. And when I told him I was 56, his eyes got really big. And he said, oh, no, Brother Jeff. You're just like my granddaddy. You're going to go see Jesus real soon. Well, I think as we get older, uh, we tend to want that to happen in our lives, but it's because we come to understand who we are and how we're supposed to live. So in chapters 4 through 6, and, and we could spend a lot of time in, in literally in every verse of these chapters, and I wish we had time to do that, but what I want to do is to try to break this down into two observations 
tonight. Just two observations. This is what we are to pursue in our lives as children of God when we understand who we are and where we are and what we, what we are. So two thoughts. Number one, as people of God, as a church and as individual Christians, we must pursue unity in the body of Christ. We must pursue unity. And so let's just look at what Paul says here. Therefore I, the, and by the way, the word therefore, it's uh, an explanation of, he's about to give an explanation based upon what he's already said. And by the, at the end of chapter 3, in verse 20, he said there is this a, a power that works within us that will allow us to do abundantly, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ever ask or imagine. And then in verse 21, he said, to him be glory in the church. Now watch this. To him be glory in the church. I want to go back briefly to chapter 1. Just turn your Bible back a page to chapter 1. Because Paul, in chapter 1, gives us a hint about what he's going to say at the end of the book. Three times in chapter 1, the first time in verse 6, Paul says, based upon God's good intention, his will and his good intention in verse 5, based upon that, he says in in verse 6, that we are to live our lives, now watch this, to the praise of his glory. We live our lives as children of God to the praise of his glory. If you go down to verse 12, he'll say the same thing again. To that end, he says, we who were the first hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And he says it again in verse 14. Um, We've been given a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, it's my belief, my conviction, that the purpose of our life is to live our lives to the glory of God. That is our purpose in this life. Now, sometimes we confuse, I think we confuse our mission and our purpose. And, you know, a lot of organizations today and even a lot of churches have what they call a mission statement. And they'll work on that and they'll plan that. And, of course, I think the Bible gives us our mission statement. But... uh, Uh, they work on a mission statement and they talk about our mission, our purpose. But I think we confuse our mission and our purpose and we really won't fulfill our mission until we understand our purpose. Our purpose is to live life to the glory of God. So the Bible says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. And in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says that we are to live in the church, that glory is to be to him in the church. And so our purpose is, is to glorify God. And when we get that right, it'll help us fulfill all the other things that he's going to say in chapters 4, 5, and 6. If somebody asks you as a child of God, what is your purpose in this life? My belief is that the answer should be, I'm here to glorify God. That is my purpose. Now my mission is to get to heaven. That's my goal and my mission, to take as many people as I can with me to heaven And to share the gospel with as many people as I can. But my purpose is to live to the glory of God. So uh, back to chapter 4. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you or I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Uh, Every child of God has been called. Not in a uh, mystical kind of way. uh, Not in um, an individual kind of way where God has appointed you and you alone and he wants to call you. But we have all been called by the gospel. The gospel calls us to obedience to Jesus Christ. So we've been called. And he says, uh, I want you to live with humility and gentleness and patience and show tolerance for one another in love. I want you to be diligent, preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Our God is a God of unity. In Genesis chapter 1, 
the text says that God said, let us make man in our image. He was talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus Christ. And he was talking about the Spirit of God. They were united. Let us make man in our image. Sometimes the Bible will refer to the pronoun uh, me or my referring to the entire Godhead. While there are three personalities in the Godhead, the Godhead is completely united. And it's important for us to recognize that. Our God is a God of unity, and he wants the church to be united. And so he says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul, or Paul told the church at Corinth, I want you to uh, be united, that you all uh, speak the same things, that you be united. In uh, John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, Father, I want them to be one as you are in me and I am in you. Our God is a God of unity, and he wants us to be united. And this unity uh, is based upon uh, some characteristics that all of us uh, need in our life. So let's look at these characteristics. First of all, this unity is based upon the character of the child of God. What is the character of the child of God? Well, look at verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. So the first uh, trait, the first character trait for a child of God is humility. We must be humble people. Uh, The Bible is very clear that God resists the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble. God hates those who have a prideful heart. Um, It's uh, unthinkable that a child of God would have a heart that is filled with pride. Because of all people who ought to understand that we are saved by the grace of God, and pride should not fill our hearts. And even more unthinkable to me than a Christian, uh, every Christian would be a gospel preacher who would have a heart that is filled with pride. Because of all people, those of us who study and talk about it on a daily basis, the grace of God need to understand that we are nothing special. Paul called himself back in chapter 3, remember we talked about this? He said, I'm the least of all, what do you say, the saints. Remember, you're a saint if you're a child of God, Ephesians 1 verse 1. And Paul said, I'm the least of all the saints. And so he was, if, if any man in the first century or any man in any time in our world had a right to be, have a little bit of pride in his heart, you would think it would be the Apostle Paul. But he said, I'm the least of all the saints. And so when he, when he said that, he could say to all of us that our lives need to be characterized by humility. The world doesn't need to see any more pride. There's enough pride and arrogance in our world. The world needs to see Christians who understand that they are saved by the grace of God can have hearts that are filled with humility. Secondly, we need to have the characteristic of gentleness. We need to be kind to one another. Our God is kind. I remember hearing a story from a preacher a long time ago about two children who were caught in a a snowstorm and uh, they uh, happened upon a house and they knocked on the door and an older lady came and let them in and she uh, bundled them up with some uh, quilts And she brought them hot chocolate and she put a fire there beside them so that they could be warm. And as the story goes, the little girl looked up at her and she said to her, Ma'am, are you God's wife? We need to be people who are characterized by kindness and gentleness. There's no reason for a Christian to be unkind. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, I'm just not a kind person. Well, if if that's who you are, if you're not a kind person, the first thing you need to do is repent. Because if we want to be like God, we will be kind. 
Our God is a God who is filled with kindness. So humility and gentleness are kindness with patience. We need to be patient toward one another. We need to show tolerance for one another in love. I take that to mean that, that we need to be willing to allow people grace in their lives. We need to extend grace to other people. Uh, even, even when we disagree with other people, we need to be gracious toward them. That doesn't mean that we have to agree about everything. Uh, the, the, the definition of tolerance in our world is not even about uh, agreeing about everything, but it is about condoning everything. That I have to agree with you and I have to condone everything you do. That's not the biblical idea of tolerance. The biblical idea of tolerance is that we will be gracious toward others. And so we are to be humble, gentle, patient, uh, show tolerance to one another in love. Those are the characteristics of unity. Secondly, the second aspect of this is our convictions. I would call these our doctrinal convictions. They're based upon verses 4 through 6. You're familiar with these. There's seven of them here. Paul says there is one body. Uh, there is one spirit. There is uh, just as we are called in one hope of our calling. So there's one body and one spirit and one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. These are our doctrinal convictions. And we must never waver from these doctrinal convictions. There are matters of, of judgment in Scripture, uh, matters of opinion, where we don't have to agree about certain matters of opinion. Um, sometimes people don't understand what all of those are, but there are matters that we must be in agreement on. If we are going to pursue unity, we must uh, be in agreement on the fact that there's only one body. The word body in this context means the same thing as the word church. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that he is the head of the body, which is the church. And so there's only one body. There's one spirit. Uh, we've been called with one hope. Uh, there's only one Lord. There, we can't have many lords. There's only one faith. That's, the, that's our, uh, our, the body of doctrine. And there's only one baptism and one God. And so these are the matters of our doctrinal convictions. And then Paul talks about, we're talking about pursuing unity, We've got to have the right characteristics. We've got to have uh, uh, the, the, right, uh, the right doctrinal convictions. And then we've got to understand that all of us have capabilities. Now, some people talk about these capabilities, and they call them talents. Uh, God has given us talents. Some people talk about gifts. God has given us certain gifts. But in this passage, he's talking, I believe, about our capabilities. So let's look at them beginning in verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, grace, Paul says it here again, the same thing he said back in chapter 2, on two separate occasions, that grace is a gift from God. He believed that the opportunity to preach the gospel was a gift of God's grace. And he says to all of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, now, what this means is that, that we haven't all been given the same gift. Uh, not everybody can, can uh, get up and teach a Bible class. But that doesn't make those who can't any less of a Christian than somebody else. Not everybody can, uh, can get up and lead singing like Brother Orr does. I, uh, I can't lead singing. Um, I had an old preacher friend in Alabama named Brother Winford Clark. And uh, he used to say about preachers that can't lead singing, he would say uh, they can carry a tune in a bucket, they just don't know how to unload it. Well, that's kind of the way I am. In my first preaching job in North Alabama, 
we had an elder, Brother uh, Thomas, who sat up on the front row. And uh, on the fourth Sunday night of every month, uh, we would have singing night. And every man in the church would lead a song. And Brother Thomas would point, he would point to the next guy. And he would say, you lead a song next. And all of the, the young men and the older men and every man there had to lead a song. Well, my first Sunday there, he pointed at me and I said, Brother Thomas, I'm not a song leader. And he said, preacher, get up and lead a song. And I thought I had to do that because he was an elder and I was supposed to do what he said. And so Brother Thomas did, said that and I got up and I led a song. And uh, after that, after I led that song, after that night, they never made everybody lead a song again. I changed the whole course of the church in one a single night. Uh, not all of us have the same abilities and the same uh, gifts, but God has given them to us. And then if you notice down in verse 11, he designates some of these uh, different uh, uh, capabilities, some of these different capabilities. So what, look at what he said. He gave some uh, as apostles. Uh, some translations say he gave some to be apostles. He gave some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, this particular set of, of uh, capabilities are gifts, as Paul describes them here, are probably uh, miraculous in nature. He's talking about gifts that were given during the days of the first century, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. We still have evangelists today, but we don't have prophets and we don't have apostles uh, but, but I believe these are primarily for the first century. But it's still true. The, the idea of God giving gifts to individuals is still for the same purpose. Look at verse 12. Uh, why did he do this? For. Uh, what is the purpose for these different capabilities? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So whatever a gift God has given you, whatever a capability, whatever talent he has given you, it is for the same purpose. They're all for the same purpose. If one man can lead a song, if one woman can teach children, if one woman can teach older women, if, uh, if one man can, uh, uh, if he knows about finances and he can help the finances of the church, whatever it is, they're all for the same purpose. And there's a threefold purpose mentioned in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. Well, what does that mean? Well, we are to help other people uh, learn how to use their own gifts and abilities. And so if a man can, uh, can lead songs, maybe he ought to use that to equip other men in the church to lead songs. If a man can teach a class, maybe he ought to, he ought to use that gift from God uh, to teach other men how to teach a class. If a woman can teach children, maybe she ought to use that gift that God has given her to teach other women uh, to teach children. And so it's all for the same purpose, for the equipping of the saints. Number two, for the work of service, the work of service. The idea here is ministry. Uh, we are all involved in ministry. There was a sign I remember on a church, a country church somewhere up in Tennessee. Mike, I remember it from our college days. I was driving out to preach somewhere, and I saw a sign, and it said, you know how sometimes people put on a sign that says minister, and they'll put the preacher's name? It said minister, and then it said every member. I thought, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? We're all supposed to be ministering to other people. We're all servants of Christ. And so it's for the work of service. And number three, and this is crucial uh, for the gifts that God has given us, for the building up of the body of Christ. We are doing this for the building up of the body of Christ. Now look at, look at what Paul is saying here. All of the gifts, all of the, the capabilities, all of the talents 
that God has given us, notice what he's saying here. It is not for our own good. It's not necessarily for our benefit. It's not to make us better necessarily, but it is for other people. It is for works of service. It is for the edifying of the saints. It is for the building up of the body of Christ. And then if you keep that in mind with what Paul said back in chapter 3, look at verse 2. If indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. You see, Paul even believed that, that his stewardship, his what he would call in another verse, administration of the gospel of God that God had given him as a grace to him was not for him, but it was for others, for you. And so he says down in verse, uh, uh, verse 8, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable or unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul believed that everything he did in the life of the church was for other people. And he viewed the fact that God had given him a gift. Sometimes, I've run into some, some preachers and, and even some uh, some people who teach Bible classes and maybe some ladies who teach other ladies who think that they are really, really something special. And, and they almost, it's almost like they want everybody to know that, that they are in charge kind of and they are the teacher and, and, uh, and everybody listen to me because what I have is so important. But Paul never looked at it that way. And the Holy Spirit never looked at it that way. And God never looked at it that way. And, and listen, church, neither should we ever look at it that way. Whatever we have been given as a gift of God's grace, we ought to always, always, always look at it, for, as it as it is for other people. And that's the way Paul viewed it, and that's the way he wanted us to view it. And so he says, and I love verse 13, in concluding this idea of our capabilities, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man. You see, all that we do in the life of the church, all of our work and service and ministry, is all about equipping the saints, the work of service, the building up the body, uh, so, that, so that all of us can grow up to become mature Christians. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We all should want to be more like Jesus. We all should want whatever we do to help us mature so that we are more like Christ. But we should never think that we've matured to the point that we don't need other people in our lives. Or we should never think that we have matured to the point that we are equal to Jesus Christ. And again, it's a, it's a very distasteful thing, a sour thing when, when somebody feels that way and, and comes across as if they are that way. And then Paul even carries this a step further that as a result, we'll no longer be children because as we mature, we won't be children. Um, we won't be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every uh, wind, one translation says, of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness in deceitful scheming. And the more, the more we try to mature and become like Jesus, and the more we use the gifts of grace that God has given us for others, the less likely we are to, to fall prey for those who would try to trick us or, or be deceitful in the teaching of the gospel. So you have, uh, he's talking about pursuing unity. We have the character, the convictions, the capabilities. And then 
in the last part of this section, we have what I would call our um, Christ-likeness. Our Christ-likeness. So look at verse uh, 15. Speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the head, even Christ. We're to grow up to be like Christ. From whom the whole body being fitted and, and held together to what every joint supplies, he says, according to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body and the building up of itself in love. And so this is Paul's uh, attitude, this part of chapter 4, about our, uh, what we're supposed to do. That we're to pursue unity, and this is how we pursue unity. By working together to build up the body of Christ, to become more like Jesus, to use, uh, to, to live our lives, our character in such a way that, that others will want to see Christ. Uh, to have a firm uh, grip on the, the doctrinal convictions that we have in our life. And to, uh, to use our capabilities and our gifts and our talents to serve others. So Paul says pursue uh, unity. And then at the end of this section in chapter 4, he closes this by saying it causes the growth of the body and the building up of itself in love. And that's really the beginning of the second part of what we are supposed to do. Number one, we're to pursue unity. Number two, we're to pursue love. And if we want to be who we're supposed to be as a church and as individual Christians, if we want the church to be united and and, uh, evangelistic, if we want to glorify God, we must pursue love. And so really in the rest of the, cha- of the book, Paul is going to talk about this idea of pursuing love. For instance, in chapter 5, he talks about the fact that we're to be imitators of God. Uh, verse 1, as, and he uses this phrase, as beloved children. So we are loved by God. And he says right after that, we are to walk in love. Uh, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. So when we talk about pursuing love, again, we're talking about trying to become more like Jesus, pursuing Christ's likeness. And he says, when we pursue love, it'll cause us to, uh, to stay away from what he calls immorality uh, and uh, uh, impurity and greed, by the way. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we kind of, uh, we kind of don't group those things together because we don't want people to be impure and we don't want people to be immoral, but we might be okay if people are a little bit greedy. But Paul puts those all together. And he says, if we're pursuing love, we will not be people who will live immoral lives. We will not have impure hearts and impure thoughts. And we will not be people who are greedy. And so he goes on to talk a little bit more about this immorality. And I love verse 8 of chapter 5 where he says, But you were formerly darkness." Uh, but now you are light in the Lord, therefore walk as children of light. And it's interesting to me that Paul does not say here that you were formerly in darkness. That's not what he says. We know we were in darkness, but he says you were formerly darkness. He describes the life of the non-Christian as being a life that is dark. But now you are light. And that is so much in line with what Jesus said when he said we are the light of the world. And so because of that, we will bear fruit of light. And the fruit of the light in verse 9 is goodness and righteousness and and truth. And and all of this is about pursuing love. Uh, Then you turn to uh, the middle of chapter 5, and and you're familiar with verses 22 through 33. And we'll not belabor this tonight, but this is about love in the family of God. This is about love in the nuclear family, in our physical family. 
Husbands, love your wives, Paul will say three different times. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, like you love your own body. Uh, so much that you'd give your own life for your wife, just as Christ gave his body. And wives are to love their husband by submitting themselves to the spiritual leadership of a man who is uh, living his best to be a spiritual leader uh, for God. Uh, Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And so it's about pursuing love in the family. And then you turn to chapter 6 and He does the same thing when he talks about the fact that children must obey their parents in the Lord. Why? Because they're trying to pursue love. And uh, they're to honor their father and mother. He says this is the first commandment with promise. And and, uh, it will be well with you and you'll live long on the earth. And fathers particularly are to train their children in the nurture or the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, the New American Standard says. Then he says that you have to be obedient to those who you work under. Literally here he's talking about slaves being obedient to masters and not by way of eye service, but as men pleasers, doing the will of God. And I love verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. It is a heart that loves God, that says whether I agree with what somebody uh, is doing to me, uh, I will love them from my heart and I will render good, uh, not evil to others. And then in the last part of chapter 6, really beginning in verse 11, he talks about our love for God and our love uh, for uh, living our life and winning the spiritual battle that we face every single day. So he says that we're to put on the whole armor of God and we're to be able to stand against the schemes, as some of the translations say, the schemes of the devil. So all of this in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 is about pursuing love. We're to pursue love in in our um, spiritual walk with God. We're to pursue love in our relationships, in our family, in our relationships, in our work life, in our relationships with other people. We're to pursue love in our uh, spiritual walk with God as we strive to defeat uh, the devil. Uh, I have a friend who's a preacher over in Arkansas, and if I were to call him today, Uh, I would say to him, "Uh, Jack, what are you doing? And he would always respond in the same way. He would say, I'm just trying to beat the devil. That's what he answers that all the time, trying to beat the devil. Well, when we pursue love, we'll try to beat the devil every day. And we'll clothe ourselves with the armor of God. And then we come to the end of this book. And at the end of this book, Paul does something that... uh, is extremely interesting to me the way he closes this book. Paul loved the church at Ephesus. He spent a lot of time with those people. He spent three years there. He, he declared the entire counsel of God to them. He never ceased from speaking to them the truth of God. And he, he, uh, he ministered to them and he wept with them and he, he prayed with them and he talked to them. Uh, he said for three years, night and day with tears. That was Paul's life. And so he's closing this book, and, and maybe as Paul writes this from prison, uh, maybe not a, a jail cell, but maybe some type of prison, as he writes these words, I wonder if Paul knows that this is the last communication he's going to have with this church. I don't know that, but perhaps it is. 
And if it is, how is he going to close it? Well, you might think that Paul might close this letter by reminding them of some of the things that he's already talked about, the need for building up the body and, and serving each other. And you might think he might talk to them about making sure they don't allow false teaching to come in because he had done all of that. He had done that with the elders of the Ephesian church on Miletus in Acts chapter 20. He told them that they needed to beware and they needed to be on guard because what he called savage wolves will come in among yourselves and they'll not spare the flock. So he talked about all of that. But I want you to notice how Paul closes this book. Not not with any of that. Peace be to the brethren, verse 23, and love with faith. So we're talking about pursuing love from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice his last words. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with an incorruptible love. That's the way Paul closes this book. His last parting words. Not about service or or growing or, or defeating false doctrine. He closes the book by saying, Grace be to those who love Jesus, our Lord Jesus, with the incorruptible love. And, and I don't know how your Bible is written, but uh, the, word, the second time the word love occurs in my Bible, it's in italics. That means it's probably not, and it's not in the Greek language twice. Uh, the translators added it to help us have an emphasis to understand. So what Paul literally says is, grace be all to the, all of those who love Jesus in an incorruptible way. He loved Jesus with an incorruptible heart. He loved Jesus with an incorruptible mind. Now I know that Paul was inspired, and I don't know what all that inspiration allowed him to do, if he could look into the future and see what was going to happen. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that, but I do know that this is the way he closed his book. The last letter that he wrote, the last words that he wrote. But as you know, this is not the last letter written to the Ephesian Christians. There's one other letter that we have. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 2. I want to encourage you just to turn with me for a moment. And, and I, I won't spend a lot of time here, but, but I want to close our thoughts tonight as we think about the church that is in Christ, the need that we have uh, to be a church that loves Jesus with an incorruptible love. So Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes seven letters to the seven churches of Asia, And the first one is to the church at Ephesus. To the church at Ephesus, to the angel, the literal translation says to the messenger, the angelos. It it could be a preacher, it could be a carrier, a courier, we don't know. Uh, To the angel of the church at Ephesus, right. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. So who is that? That's Jesus. And uh, we'll see tomorrow that Jesus is standing among the the lampstands. We'll see that in Revelation chapter 5. And, and by the way, tomorrow morning at worship, we're going to talk about Revelation 4 and 5. It's a beautiful passage. It reminds us of, of what Christ is all about. But he says these words. And so Jesus is speaking to this church, the same church that Paul wrote his letter to. We don't know exactly how long, maybe 30 years, uh, maybe 20, 20 to 30 years after Paul writes his letter Christ writes his letter to Ephesus. And Paul's closing words, remember, uh, grace be to all of those who love Jesus with a, a love that is incorruptible. And Jesus begins the letter in a powerful way. And he commends them. And he praises them. And look at how he praises them. I know your deeds, Jesus said. 
Jesus knew about all of the good works that they do. Remember Paul had said to them that the, the works of ministry, the, the, the service that they do, is to be done as works of service. And Jesus said, I know your works. Just as Paul had told them to do that, Jesus said, I know that you're doing that. And a lot of churches I know have many good works. Um, I remember I was at, when I was at Louisville for a while, there was one time that the, a deacon was giving a report years ago, and he said, we're happy to say that we have 53 different ministries in this church. And kind of boasting about that a little bit. Jesus said, I know your works. And, and then look, secondly, I know your toil. What does that mean? Well, not only do they do a lot of good works, but they work hard. They're hard workers. They probably spent extra days during the week, not just on Sunday gathering together, but extra days during the week. I know you're told. Number three, I know your perseverance. They didn't give up easily. One of the struggles that we have as children of God as we grow older is it's easy to give up because we're tired and we want somebody else to do it. I know your perseverance. Number four, I know that you cannot tolerate evil men. Jesus commended this church for not allowing false doctrine to destroy this body. Isn't that wonderful? They did not allow false teaching to, to come in. And, and remember, Paul had said to the elders in Acts 20, you've got to guard against that because it, it could happen. Now, I don't know if this means that it didn't happen the way Paul thought it would happen or if it would happen later on. Jesus said, you don't tolerate evil men. Not only do you not tolerate them, but you put those to the test who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance. And you've endured for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Now if you read that, wouldn't you think, what a great church. That's a wonderful group of, of God's people. And, and they've they fulfilled all of the things that Paul told them they needed to do. They must have had great elders and, you know, Ephesus had a great heritage. Think of all the, the people who worked that we know who worked in the church at Ephesus. We know Paul was there. We know Timothy was there. Most scholars believe that John spent time there. Uh, that great orator uh, who had the magic tongue named Apollos was there. Those two great soul winners, Aquila and Priscilla, were there. It was a great church. And Jesus recognized all of that. And then if you look at verse 4, there's that ominous word, but. But I have this against you. The word this is probably not there. I have against you. Some translations say, I have one thing against you. Oh my. What is that? that you have left your first love. No. No. And what that means is that, that you can be a great church. You can have many acts of service. You can be hard workers. You can work overtime. You can, you can have many different ministries and, and plans and programs. And, and you can keep false doctrine out. You can make sure that the, the truth of the gospel is always taught. You can have all you can you can be persevering and, and long suffering and and you don't grow weary. You can have all of those good things. But Jesus said, You've left your first love. This church 
did the very thing that Paul admonished them in his last words that he wrote not to do. Grace be to all of those who love Jesus with incorruptible love. They quit loving Jesus. And we're big about big things and and big programs and big crowds and big contributions and and all of that is, is good and well if our hearts are right. But in all of that, we must not leave the love that we have for Christ. Amen. And it was so bad, listen, it was so bad that Jesus said, you need to repent. Even though they had all of those good characteristics and those good traits and those good things, Jesus said, you need to repent. And if you don't, I'm going to remove your candlestick. Wow. So, tonight, may I just encourage you. I don't know where you are tonight in your faith and your walk with God. and Maybe you're doing everything that you can to pursue unity and to pursue love and, and all of those things. Maybe you're active in the life of the church. But unless your heart, listen church, unless your heart is in love with Jesus, none of that matters in the big scheme of things. None of it matters. First and foremost, and and I, I want to say to the young people who are here tonight that, that you need to know what the Scriptures say and you need to be able to defend truth and, and you need to be able to, uh, to work hard and you need to know what your gifts are and to use them uh, for the glory of God. And, and you need to not ever give up because sometimes people get older and, and we get tired and we give up and, you, and I hope you don't ever do that. But more important than all of that is don't ever quit loving Jesus. Don't ever quit loving Jesus. And to those of us who are older, if our love for Christ has grown cold, he would say to us, you need to repent. My prayer for all of us and my prayer for this church is that you'll do all of those things that we've talked about throughout the book of Ephesians, but that you'll never, ever, ever allow your love for Christ to grow. Because wouldn't it be an awful thing in the judgment day if Christ said all of those good glowing things about us. But then he said, I'm sorry, you quit loving me. Those things may look like a barometer of our love sometimes, but love is not based upon those things. It's based upon what is in our heart. I believe we have to do those things, and I believe we will when love for Christ is in our heart. So do you love Christ? Will you love him with an incorruptible love? That means a love that that won't grow old and it won't grow cold and a love that won't burn out, that you'll continue to love him all of your life. And if we love him, the first thing that we will do is obey his will. And so maybe tonight we're going to sing a song that Brother Orr has selected. And if you're not a child of God, if you love Christ, he said, you'll keep my commandments. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you will give him your life in repentance, if you will confess his name and be immersed for the forgiveness of sins, he'll wash away all of your sins, he'll write your name in the Lamb's book of life, he'll add you to his body, the one body, and he'll put you on your road to glory. If you've never done that, we want to encourage you to do that tonight. If you are a Christian and you are actively involved in the life of the church and you guard against things that you should guard against, but you don't have love for Christ in your heart, it is crucial that you make that change. And so if we can pray for you, if we can help you in any way, 
We invite you to come to the Lamb of God while we stand together and while we sing.